everybody, and welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I am your host, Jacob Shop, and joining me as always, I have Mark Steinbrenner. What's going on, everybody? Happy to be back for another podcast with my friends. And also, Evan Roosh, who is our topic master for the day. Yeah, what's going on, everyone? Hope you're excited to uh, learn a little bit about history with me today. It's not as conspiracy-driven or, honestly... As just kind of mind-blowing as Jacob's last week. <laughs> if you haven't listened to that yet, I would highly suggest you check it out. But hope you're ready to learn a little something. So how, how was your guys' days today before we start? It was good. Pretty much just worked on this. <laughs> nice. Uh, my day was good. Um, much happened today that got me ready for this specific podcast. What what is no, that? No, I just wanted to say that. Oh. I just wanted you to feel like encouraged. Oh, I mean, we're always encouraged. Oh, right. just well, your presence is encouraged. Okay, what I will say though that is fully truthful is that I am extra hyped for this week because I know some idea of what Evans' yep. uh, topic is about. Certainly not fully, but uh, well, let's just say I'm hyped. Gave Mark a little little sprinkle of a teaser. Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, nice. That's what we say in the industry that we've been part of for <laughs> Is that three what episodes. they say? A sprinkle yep. of a teaser. All right. Between that or a teaspoon of a teaser, but that's oh. way too many teas. Okay. It's a tongue twister. Oh, man. Tongue the... Now we're going to try that one. <laughs> <laughs> I already said my uh, bless you joke once, so I can't reuse it. Oh, was that from episode one? It was. I was too quick with it. I uh, mm. One and done, as they say. I Just... heard it said. That... Just right. realized that I'm episode three of the podcast, and a little behind the scenes for the listeners, episode three is my favorite Star Wars episode. So. Oh, wow. And I can't believe I just said that uh, in front of an audience, because I know I'm going to get yelled at. And those really happened, so that could have been your history topic. Yeah, those are all true, like based on true events. Yeah, it's just so. a different area of space, mm-hmm. right? Or- galaxy well it's the galaxy far far away all right right, i mean they kind of say it and what's truly trippy is how we got you know word for word concept for concept accurate with those true events events how did someone get that to us that's what i like to know that story and they didn't even have podcasts to tell those stories like that's nuts yeah i mean the most important star wars story mark and i found out this past weekend is the star wars holiday special oh man what what People, an experience. There, uh, there's not enough alcohol in this <laughs> world to get you through Star Wars or Christmas special. Let me tell you, you know when you see something really bad, someone might say, like, it's so bad, you gotta see it. This is so bad, save yourselves. <laughs> Do not even think about it. Don't let your children watch it. I think, I could be wrong, I think it was made for children. Definitely don't let your children but watch it. But it is... Very clearly made just by some men on drugs. And and you might be like, oh, he's just saying that. No, no, no. no yeah. The concepts in, in the movie, you, it's trippy. Well, you said no amount of alcohol would help you get through it. Maybe some drugs, question mark? Well, I can't. Uh, sponsored <laughs> just, by. No. Just, just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. no kids, uh, no, no. But uh, anyway, it, it was a treat. Right? But not, wait, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I don't know. Alrighty then. Yep. <laughs> now you well, know a little bit about ourselves. Uh, on that endorsement. Yep. <laughs> anyway, but today, what I got for you two is 
you know, what U.S. historians consider the quintessential turning point in the Civil War, United States Civil War, of course. It happened on day three of the battles, Battle of Gettysburg, and it's what's commonly known as Pickett's Charge. What a mistake. Oh, yeah. Big mistake. You know, when you think about it. Yeah, why would you use a picket fence and a charge? Like, it's actually just two guys with like, doesn't a seem sign like that a says very... defense. <laughs> okay. Oh, my Well, it gosh. probably didn't work, did it? No, no, it did not. And kind of led to the downfall if you look at it from your know, 2020 vision. Um, or just hindsight. That that's was, the last that was almost a joke. That was, that was almost, almost a, a joke. That was almost a really good joke. Very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Missed ah, it by. You can't even it. say 2020 vision anymore because 2020 was such a bad year mm-hmm. that it just now means bad things instead. But, but nah, never mind. Didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to it. So, to give you a little bit of background before I really dive into Pickett's Charge, what it was, why it happened. And why Southern historians kind of get it mixed up on, Mark alluded to it earlier. Uh, He said, what a mistake, and I agreed with him. But why some historians are kind of hesitant to blame uh, General Robert E. Lee, who was the leader of the Confederate forces, even though he was the one that ordered the attack. So we're going to dive in a little bit to what historians, uh, immediately after the war, who they blamed, and why, uh, and just a little foreshadowing, why really General Robert E. Lee is the one to quote-unquote blame for ordering what essentially led to the downfall of the Confederacy. So um, we'll dive into the background of it. So it was the summer of 1863, and General Robert E. Lee for the Confederacy had just launched his second invasion of the northern states. Lee sought to capitalize on Confederate victories such as the Seven Days Battle, the Second Battle of Bull Run, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, I knew I was going to stumble on that one, and the draw that happened at Antietam. And fun fact, Antietam was the only other battle that happened in the northern states uh, besides Gettysburg. So Lee was looking to take the war out of Virginia, out of the southern states, because the farmland and just the land in general had been ravaged, uh, just through both armies trying to collect resources for their armies, as well as just you know, the battles, I mean, these battles were so bloody that it really took out huge amounts of land. Um, it's crazy to think, like, how actually, like, how brutal it was. Because, like, it's so mm-hmm. easy to just read about it in the textbook, but you don't really think about, like, how how much blood there actually was in this war. It is crazy. I mean, when you look at the, and I'll get into the total number of casualties at the at the end of my little story here. I mean, putting that in perspective, it's, you know, hundreds of thousands, and, like, that's the size of cities, you know? Like, well, and this was back when the U.S. only had so many people in it. Yeah. I mean, and, and not even just, like, the, the deaths, but, like, the injuries, like, mm-hmm. how gruesome it was on those, like, battlefield hospitals and stuff like that. And oh, man. I, I just cannot imagine going through that. And plus, you know, having to rebuild the country as one too after that i mean it obviously took we won't get into that this episode maybe we could later but it took years decades to kind of rebuild that relationship i mean that's crazy but anyway so robert lee launched his invasion his second invasion into the northern states uh, using the shenandoah valley as cover he moved north on june 3rd and was pursued by union major general joseph hooker who was later replaced by Major General George G. Meade. 
So Lee's army crossed into Pennsylvania in the middle of June. By June 28th, he had reached the, oh boy, this is going to be a tough one, Susquehanna River. Good job. Uh, oh, I hope I nailed it. The opposing forces, so the Union and the Confederacy, collided at the crossroads town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which, fun fact, is the only Civil War battle to be featured in NBC's The Office, in case you guys were wondering. Wild. And on the morning of, oh, so this happened on the morning of July 1st. Uh, in the first day, in the severe fighting, the Confederates swept the Federals from the fields west and north of the town, but were unable to secure Cemetery Hill and Cups Hill, which is where the Federals retreated to. And this is looked, a little foreshadowing, to be a huge, the fact that they didn't pursue the Union troops up to that hill. Honestly, kind of, in my research, you could say that was kind of the major downfall and kind of what led to Pickett's charge later on day three. Uh, if they would have pursued right away, they could have caught the Union off guard a little bit, maybe not let them regroup. But the Confederate forces that day also suffered heavy casualties. So they decided to just be done on day one and then go into day two. That is that's kind of a big deal, though, because when you think about it, if you have them on the back foot mm-hmm. and you are letting them retreat and you don't give chase, especially when they're going to a higher ground to get that advantage, mm-hmm. then you're kind of setting yourself up for a really tough, trek back to where you were you mm-hmm. know what i mean i should mention i don't know my research didn't show was cemetery hill and cups hill already fortified do they already have you know guns and batteries up there to you know hit the confederate soldiers so i don't know that but we're going to move on to day two now uh, now day two was also filled with heavy fighting include the infamous union stand at little round top but like i mentioned we're not going to dive too much into the first and second day i just want to focus on the third day and what is known as Pickett's Charge. Yeah, um, I was just kind of interested. That first day, I was trying to confirm whether or not this was a uh, a myth or or not. I know this isn't the focus of today, but you know we're here, so why not talk about it? Um, I think Gettysburg. Obviously, I don't know how much you guys know about it, but obviously the the start of it was an accident. Um, yeah, day uh... one. And I'm going to need some correction. Uh, you know, that's the good thing about this podcast. Hopefully you get your interested in history and um, you guys have enough interest in it to fact check us sometimes because, you know, this podcast isn't about getting everything right on purpose. But what I will say is I think they were actually looking for shoes for supplies really? in town and they happen to stumble across each other. And I think if you look at day one of Gettysburg, or maybe they don't consider it day one, maybe it's like part A or 1A of 1B mm-hmm. of first day, but... I don't think that that many soldiers were involved in the first part. I okay. think it was in the just in the thousands, or like, or I mean, I mean, obviously it's in thousands, but I mean like mm. a thousand total, maybe or maybe a little more, <laughs> because everyone was looking for supplies in the same little area and just ran into each other by accident. Everyone just looking for shoes. That's crazy. I did not see that in my research, but again, I only focused on the third day. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, most yeah, part. yeah. But anyway, so I think uh, I think that's kind of ironic. I don't I don't think Gettysburg for anybody. Obviously, the subsequent battles of of Gettysburg were planned. I don't think the intention to fight there was ever uh, the real idea. I mean, it kind of makes sense, though, because supplies are so hard to get across to everything. It, like, especially in those times, you had to rely on trains so much and, like, wagons and everything. So it's it's a lot harder to get everything where it needs to go. So, I mean, if you get to a town where there's people that are already set up and have supplies, you're going to try and get those supplies if you can because you're going to need them. Right. I'll start early, though. I mean, you're going to get shoes, and all of a sudden you come out the store like, oh, crap. <laughs> Got your new Nikes. Yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah. like, ah, <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. 
they have Nikes, but still have you know muzzle loaders for. No, the Confederates <laughs> had the Nikes, and then the the Federals had all of the Adidas. So that was where the big rift oh. came. Yep. Mm-hmm. But no, Mark, to your point, so General Lee did not want to fight at Gettysburg, and we'll get into that later. Uh, but you are 100% correct. He did not want to fight there because it put the Confederates at a disadvantage, which I'll talk to a little C- bit later. Certainly in at least the position position mm-hmm. of where they were, yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. So back to Pickett's Charge. So it was the culmination of the Battle of Gettysburg. Like I said, it, what, it happened on the third day. Uh, the third and final day of the battle, I should say, and it involved an infantry assault of 15,000 Confederate soldiers, and they were going against the Union Major General George Meade and his troops, which were positioned along Cemetery Ridge, which part of Cemetery Hill, like I mentioned before, and was only manned by 6,500 Union soldiers. So the Confederates had more than double of the numbers, sheer numbers, um, of the Union, but you have to remember they had the high ground, don't make a Star Wars joke. Don't make a Star Wars joke. Don't make a <laughs> Star Wars joke. I already talked about episode three. <laughs> yep. No more time for episode three, Evan. And it should also be noted, just another little fun fact, that Meade, actually General George Meade, who was the commanding officer of the Union forces, actually received his post on June 28th. Which so he's was, had it for like four days. Yep. So essentially, yeah, three or four days before the Battle of Gettysburg, which is pretty incredible in all accounts of Meade. Um, he was very decisive and led to, you know, a big part of why they defeated, right. you know, Robert E. Lee, who up to this point, and we were going to talk about how Lee did make a mistake, but Lee was, you know, out generaling, that's not a saying, but he's out generaling the Union officers by a ton. He waited for the Union to attack, which led to, you know, a majority of the Confederacy or Confederate victories in the war. Well, if we jump to before the Civil War started, that was actually one of the main reasons the South was so um, had such an advantage early on in the Civil War. All, all the major generals that led the United States Army or military prior to the Civil War beginning were Southern generals and leaders. Right. So, mm-hmm. so when the South started to defect, um, they claimed all those really top guys who would have otherwise been running just the United States military. Mm-hmm. Those guys all went to the South. So if you wonder, like, how did we get all these Southern people not funded by the government up in, you know, to shape the fight in such a war successfully? It's because they got, at least according to how history writes it, the best of the best when it comes to leadership mm-hmm. in, in the military. That's very true. So, Pickett's Charge would take the nine brigades of Confederate soldiers over a three-quarter mile of completely open ground and was very susceptible to can fire as well as musket volleys the entire time. They were in range of both of those things. I, I don't know if you're going to—you might get to this, but is this the the battle where they loaded cannons with, like, forks and knives and stuff like that and shot it because they ran out of cannon—like, actual, like, cannon fire? That could be it, because in the research I did, they did mention that they were very low on campfire. The Union side was. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't get their reserve artillery up in time uh, to counter, and there is a reason for that, which I'll get to in just a second, uh, to counter the Confederates charging. So they might have used okay. you know, other things. Um, maybe that's sort of the Pirates of the Caribbean got that, their inspiration that's from. That's what I was thinking of, too, but like I'm pretty sure... If I'm remem- remembering correctly, that they did have to like pretty much improvise and use like silverware and stuff that they could find in the air, like around, and pretty much used it as improvised, uh, like shells. Mm-hmm. 
And not even, uh, you know, I can't speak to day three uh, as far as where they were at ammunition-wise. I know on day two, um, the Big Rock, Little Rock of day two, I think that's correct, or Hill, Big Hill, Little Hill. Little Round Top? Little Round Top, Mm -hmm. that's it, Little Round Top. They had to uh, attach their bayonets and actually like charge down the hill yep. to fend them off because mm-hmm. there was just there's no ammunition left, and that that gets back into how incredible it is that they made that stand because they were just outnumbered. And mm-hmm. you mentioned the Confederates numbers. Just imagine getting bayoneted. Ugh. And I, I hate to do it, but people, if you haven't seen the movie Gettysburg, go watch it. It stars the actor who, uh, what is it, plays Harry in. Um, Dumb and Dumber, the blonde guy. Oh, yeah. Couldn't tell you his name off the top really? of my head. But yeah. Wow. I, he plays a serious role in Gettysburg, obviously, but he really proves his acting chops in Gettysburg, so check that wow. out. Never knew that. But anyway, so that morning on July 3rd, Robert E. Lee met with James General James Longstreet and ordered that he attack the Union forces on top of Cemetery Hill. Now, Lieutenant General James Longstreet thought that the plan was futile, and only reluctantly agreed to it, essentially because, I mean, at that point, in no world could, well, A, you're never going to disregard an order from a general. Right, first especially foremost. Robert E. Lee. Like, how are you going to say no? Exactly. Who up to that point, I mean, again, like we mentioned before, was essentially just taking the Union generals to school, like outmaneuvering them at every point. So he reluct- Longstreet reluctantly agrees to it, but he told Lee that no 15,000 men who ever lived could take that position. And some men, just in the ranks, seemed to feel the exact same way. In fact, artillery captain Joseph Graham of North Carolina reported here in comments such as, I don't hardly think that position can be carried. So Pickett's men, as long as uh, Pettigrew's men, who we'll talk a little bit about in a bit, we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, they really did not think that they had a chance here. So... Lee, however, believed that General George Meade had weakened his center to protect his flanks and would be vulnerable to that direct assault. Now, before the assault actually occurred, there was an artillery bombardment of 150 Confederate guns or Confederate cannons, which up to that point was the largest grand battery ever assembled on the North American continent. He began firing at 1 in the afternoon and ended at 3 in the afternoon, so two full hours of just raining bombardments at the Union Center. It should be noted that a majority of their shots actually missed the line, the front lines, as well as the artillery behind. But we talked about how the Union uh, backup artillery, reserve artillery, excuse me, couldn't get up to the front. So all of the Confederate shots were missing high, and they were hitting the backup artillery, so they couldn't bring that up. Okay. But casualties were still low for the Union after this bombardment. Uh, so they're still in good shape. Um, I don't know how you go. Obviously, I am no um, director of a cannon or have never shot a cannon, but it's kind of hard to believe that you don't just see your shots missing and not like, Adjust, lower it a little especially bit. Especially if you're shooting for two hours. Sure. But I'm like, not sure that they could see their position. Well, they could see the line at the top of the hill. Could they? Mm-hmm. Oh. I was under the impression they couldn't get a good visual on where the majority of the soldiers were at at the time but mm-hmm. i mean i'm just kind of going off of what my research was no that, you would know more than me at this point yeah <laughs> i wouldn't say that but uh, going back to the the whole thing about the comments about like not being able to take the hill i i think that's kind of an overlooked thing it 
like just how much morale probably played into this sure. because if you've got like i don't i don't not going to say 50 50 but even like 30 70 and the 30 percent is saying like we're not going to do this like that's taking a lot of motivation away from like a force that's trying to take a position oh totally. so it that's kind of a huge blow right off the bat when you haven't even started the actual fighting to take the hill so mm-hmm. i mean if you even think about it on day two the Union made a great stand on Little Round Top. So, I mean, the Union did have the momentum in a way at this point. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that totally morale definitely comes into effect. So, approximately 75 Union cannons responded until ordered to cease firing and conserve ammunition, back to what we were talking about before. And when the shelling concluded around 3 p.m., the Confederate infantry stepped out in a line that was one and a half miles long to advance that three quarters of a mile of complete open ground. Uh, there were some broken fences that disordered their ranks, as well as, you know, a sunken road, which also just made their three-fourths of a mile trek even harder. How long did you say the line of people was? It was a mile and a half. Can you th- imagine how long that actually is it's... of just straight people? Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's 15,000 strong, so that's very intimidating if you're sitting on top of that hill. And But I mean, also, that that's, absolutely. also mm-hmm. that's just like uh, you have so much to shoot at if you're on the Union side at that point. Like you've just got a stretch of people. It's going to be hard to miss, so like mm-hmm. you're putting yourself really out there. On top of that, to, to Jacob's point, I mean, you guys have seen hell already, but to go into a battle that you think you can't win – and then basically just be target practice, or at least see the guys around you getting hit. Mm-hmm. If you went into it thinking you can't win, and you've seen the guys around you getting just pegged, it probably doesn't take much for you to be like, this is not going to happen. It, well, it reminds me of uh, the like the D-Day invasion from like some of the World War II movies where they land on the beach and they mm-hmm. just immediately have machine gun fire everywhere. It's kind of like the Civil War version of that. I mean... You have really nowhere to hide if you're in an open field, so mm-hmm. it's just like should just give you that much more uh, pride in the fact that D-Day did work out for us, right? Exactly, totally two different outcomes, but oh yeah, totally. I mean, the only option in both of those is move forward or essentially die. And I mean, the casualties uh, that I'll go through later of just this one charge are incredible. I mean, over half of you know the people that charged were either killed or taken prison right. prisoner or injured. Lee Lee really did just send them to die essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean at that point you pretty much have to wait for the guy next to you to die so you can use him as cover. Like it's amazing. Well not even really because they were the ones pushing the position. Mm-hmm. So as the guys died in front of you, you were just walking closer. You, you were that's what it's crazy in this in this whole maneuver. They were just walking closer to the guy shooting at them without any cover. Any cover. It, it, mm-hmm. Really, for a guy like Lee's stature, it's shocking the decision that he made ultimately. Oh, for sure. I mean, even endangering, you know, we talked about how long of a stretch that was, but I mean, there's still material like fences, like we mentioned, you know, the defense sign before. Yes. That was blocking their approach. There was the sunken Emmitsburg Road. That had a rail fence on its west side. So to you know get past these things, they had to stop marching, disassemble this stuff, and then move forward, which is just more added time. And and I was, oh, go ahead, obviously, like if you have a mile and a half long line of men, it's obviously 
going to be enough to at least get you close, if anything, because mm-hmm. that's a lot of guys that are trying to surround what is essentially one smaller position. But it's just once you get to the base of the hill, you still have to go up. And to have all of those guys at the top raining shots down on you, it's there's such a small chance of you actually getting to where you need to go at that point. And yeah, like Mark said, for a guy like Robert E. Lee, who's been such an outstanding general to this point, for him to make a, a mistake of calling this charge, it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, desperate times, I guess. But Essentially, and we'll get into a little bit about what the philosophy is, why he I mean, even ordered the charge. So there are three typical scapegoats, because Southern historians, it is very interesting, sorry to sidetrack, it is interesting that the Civil War, uh, when you think about it, just wars in general, the history is always written by the victor. But a good hunk of the Civil War history is actually written by Southern historians. And, in, I mean, most of the Confederate generals, including Robert E. Lee himself, wrote memoirs that were published, distributed reflecting on the time in the Civil War. So there was, I mean, when you consider the time as the 1800s, good transparency on what had happened and kind of the reasons behind, you know, some of the decisions. I just thought that was kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, they I'm sure they were keeping logs cuz both sides thought they were going to win. So yep. I mean, if you're keeping logs to track your victory, then obviously you're going to write what it is. It's not like you're planning on losing and having to write a revisionist history right off the top. So And I do and I do think there's this perception amongst people thinking obviously a lot of people know the significance of Gettysburg, but because the Union ended up winning, I think there's a lot of people who believe the Union would have won anyway, but there is a lot of literature out there speaking to what the war would have looked like had the South won the Betty, uh, Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, and I think people should look into that because it goes to show how successful the um, Confederates actually could have been had Gettysburg turned out differently and that it, it really mm-hmm. did matter. I know a lot of people think, well, if not Gettysburg, the Union would have made a stand somewhere else and changed the war. But that is not a given and should only add to the significance of this underdog fight at well, Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Another thing with that, too, is just like the positioning of Gettysburg. You're in Pennsylvania already. Like yep. if you can capture a city, your city, well, not I don't know how major it was at the time, but like if you can capture a city that far north, if you're the Confederates and you can set up a base there that's huge Mm -hmm. you have so much so many more opportunities to move from there compared to where you have been pushed back to if you lose that battle so it really is a a, like can't be understated how major that is because if they would have won who knows what would have happened and i'm Mm -hmm. sure that was all on lee's mind as he was making some of these decisions rash or not yep so back to the charge i mean i love the points that we're bringing up i mean what you said, Jacob, being that far up north, they were probably within, I don't know the exact distance from Gettysburg to Washington, D.C., but they were probably within striking distance, I'd imagine, from the capital and maybe could have you know, ended it in the next couple months. But, yeah, this is very interesting to, to think about. But anyway, like I mentioned, there were a lot of obstacles in the way during that three-quarter mile march. Uh, because of that, a 400-yard gap between Pickett's division uh, and that of James Johnson Pettigrew, who Pettigrew was, who was his colleague, Peter um, Pettigrew. They got 400 yards. Yep, Peter Pettigrew. Lots of movie references today. <laughs> oh yeah. And only one of them has been about the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> um, We're taking this subject very seriously, people. Yeah. Okay. 
So there got to be a 400-yard gap between those two, which caused big, big problems. But when Pettigrew's men came under fire on their left flank from the 8th Ohio and 126th North New York regiments, they began drifting more to the right. And once they got 80 yards out uh, from the Union line, they decided to charge, you know, throw on the muskets and charge, and they were shot to pieces. Now, a lot of historians believe or have written that the Union forces were chanting Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. And if you remember that that battle, kind of the reverse happened with Stonewall Jackson. So the Union troops were storming upon his location at the Battle of Fredericksburg. And it was kind of a similar situation where the Confederacy were, was able to hold off the Union advance. And that's where Stonewall Jackson got his nickname, Old Stonewall. But anyway, Pickett's advance had shifted left to close the gap between his and Pettigrew's division. And in doing so, they lost protection from their rights and came under extreme fire from Union General George Stannard's Vermont's regiments, and as well as the guns at Little Round Top, and even further left on the Union line. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a tough spot to be in, because you obviously want to keep the line together, but also, if you're giving up pretty much your your attempt at a flank at that point Mm -hmm. because you're going back towards the middle of the line. So, I mean, yep. That's a, especially for someone who's being told by Robert E. Lee, like get that hill, like to make a split second decision like that. I mean, anyone could make the wrong choice. So Mm -hmm. you really sympathize with like the guys that got put actually into the, the fray. It's not easy. Okay. So they did eventually break and retreat after getting hit by, mini balls, cannon fire, I mean, their lines were disoriented, all that. And after the Confederates retreated, they were vulnerable. And Meade, knowingly, that still had a significant force waiting uh, back at their line, including most of those 150 Confederate guns that had just been shelling them for two hours, uh, actually chose not to pursue. That was kind of a common theme with, you know, this battle in general. We talked about day one where the Confederate forces didn't or chose not to pursue, uh, which extended the battle. Meade, not pursuing them here, actually infuriated Abraham Lincoln, and he was criticized highly for it. And Lincoln is actually quoted saying that the enemy was within our grasp, and we just had to reach out and take them. Which is still, I mean, I don't know if you really had a point there, because if you keep in mind the numbers... I mean, the Union forces were still only 6,500 directly at, you know, Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, and Culp's Hill. And Lee still had a good number of, you know, forces as well as cannons to counter them. So it's kind of crazy that, you know, Abraham Lincoln would be criticizing, you know, his general kind of openly, um, who's only been in job, only had the job for about four days. Well, and especially with the position that they already had, like, you have, like you said, they had the high ground, so... Why oh, would you give up that strategic location? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, you won for the day, but you're still probably outnumbered after that third day, and you are already running low on munitions. Mm-hmm. So it really doesn't benefit you in any way to go after them at that point, unless you're just planning on literally charging in with your your muskets and trying to bayonet everyone. But do um, you have something, Mark? I guess I was just going to say, but I didn't want to get ahead of Evan. I was just going to say, I thought when Pickett turned back, he was told to go again. And I was, I, I don't know if we're getting to that again, but I, I, I was under the impression 
that not only did they retreat at one point, but once they had retreated, retreated at least initially, maybe there were multiple times, but I got the impression he was, he had come back saying like, we can't do this. And he was told to go back out there with his men basically. And they just got massacred again but I, I don't know maybe that, maybe that, that maybe now I'm, been, no I, maybe now i'm remembering history from a movie's perspective <laughs> and and i'm getting it mixed up so don't quote me on this no but, i mean uh, you could be completely right um i just kind of know the i mean i don't know the specifics of the actual charge sure sure um i just kind of know i mean the charge no sorry the bombardment happened uh then the charge happened they got separated they got torn to shreds by those mini balls the cannon fire uh, and then eventually, I mean, there was a point where they did break the Union line, but the Union was able, the Union troops were able to kind of reorganize and send additional reinforcements to where that line broke. Uh, so the Confederates really got hurt there. A lot of casualties for them there. In fact, just as a result of the whole charge, Pickett's 6,000-man division left more than half of its men dead bleeding or captured on the field at Gettysburg. Ugh, it's just terrible. Which I mean, included I guess good cuz we won, but Yeah. Which included all 15 regimental commanders. So not only did he leave, I mean, we're talking probably 3500 people I mean dead, captured or, you know, bleeding on the field, but all 15 of his regimental commanders. Well, this goes I'm kind of going back to my point where I said it was a risky move for him to make the call to go back and reform that line. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But if, what if, I don't remember who the other guy was that was leading the other charge. Uh, James Johnson Pettigrew. Pettigrew. Um, if Pettigrew would have been able to kind of make a dent in the Union forces on his side, mm-hmm. then you think they'd have to send the reinforcements from the other side of the line where Pickett would have been. So if he would have kept separated and maybe gone around, there could have been a chance that he could have perhaps caught them off guard because they would have had a week in line there but who knows mm-hmm. i mean these are all what ifs and i'm not a military general so what do, i'm not saying that i have any more insight than they did but mm-hmm. i'm sure just, they all felt there was a lot of blame to go around yeah it's just interesting oh, yeah. to like look at this in hindsight and try and say from our perspective like oh you could have done this rather than this or you could have tried doing this instead of that but mm-hmm. and i think lee felt that pickett had blown it i think i think they're retreating i think i think lee was under the conception that they were close but they weren't close. That is super interesting. So I will get to that in a second. But just before I get into that, I uh, just want to share that the Union losses as a result of this charge were 1,500. So when you compare that to the 6,500 that they had that's uh, at the lot. beginning, that still is a lot. Yeah. But they were able to you know, push back the Confederate forces at a pretty good cost. So both sides did lose a lot in regards to this charge, but the Union was able to keep that high ground. So did, is their numbers, like, total, or is it just from Pickett's side that they lost half, or, like, how much? Just just from, I'm sorry, so. So just from Pickett's 6,000, they lost yes. over half? How, yep. Is there, like, a total that they lost with, like, the 15,000? I or... did not see that. Okay. No. Um, I, I know just... that Pettigrew's division lost, I mean, out of 843 men, he lost 687. Okay, wow. so that is pretty. Insane. It that was pretty bad all across. Yeah, yeah, I'm which not is sure. to be assumed. But mm-hmm. I will give the ending Gettysburg numbers. Yeah, um, at the at the end of this, uh, but I'm not sure the exact um, casualties as a total. Sure, sure. Of of the battle or of the charge, excuse me. But back to Mark's point, Robert E. Lee actually told the men that were trudging past him, "It is my fault," and that's in quotation marks from my sources. 
And when Lee returned to Virginia after they retreated, because after the Battle of Gettysburg, the Confederacy did pull out of the North, went back home uh, to try to get the battle back on their terms. Uh, he wrote his resignation to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and said, and I quote, I cannot even accomplish what I myself desire. How can I fill the expectation of others? Oh, my. So he did take blame for it. However. Oh, here we go. <laughs> in the three official reports on the battle and in the post-war years, so in his memoirs, he never repeated those words and generally implied the failure the failure was due to others. That's too bad. I mean, either way, he resigned. And that's a huge so, loss. I, I misspoke there. He sent in his resignation, but accepted. Jefferson Davis yeah. did not no. accept okay. it. So okay, Lee okay. was still the general after the Battle of Gettysburg. But still, either way, I mean, if he sent in his res- resignation, obviously mm-hmm. he's not as into it as he was before. Oh, it's he's... telling. Yeah, it's yeah, very telling so that he, he didn't feel he made the right it, calls, which he yeah. did. That's not, not a great sign for them in, in, no, in any way. So, And... And we talked about before, Lee, actually by most Southern historians, does not get blamed almost at all um, for ordering Pickett's charge. And it typically falls under three of Lee's subordinates. Uh, Major General James Ewell Brown, we're going to call him Jeb. Um, So it's, excuse me, Major General James Ewell Brown Stewart. That's the longest name of all time. That's That's a mouthful. We are going to just call him Jeb Stewart was the commander of the Confederate Cavalry, Lieutenant, Lieutenant General Richard Ewell, and then General James Longstreet, who I mentioned before was the one that protested directly to Lee uh, before the charge even took place. Kind of get it, kind of scapegoating himself on that one just by protesting. Yep. I think that kind of put him in, his cro- in Lee's crosshairs at that point. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start with uh, James Ewell Brown, Jeb, again, good old Jeb. Uh, he was supposed to act as the scout of the army, being the head of the cavalry. So he was supposed to be the eyes and ears of Lee. And he was out scouting, was supposed to follow the right flank of the march into the north. But he was blocked by Union army. So uh, to put in perspective, the cavalry, uh, Jeb Stewart's, or Jeb Stewart with his cavalry, were, was separated from the Confederate main army. And he had to cross the river much further east than he had originally planned. So there was a big delay in actually reporting that the Union Army was approaching Gettysburg. So that what that goes back to Mark's point where Robert Lee didn't want to fight at Gettysburg. It wasn't advantageous for him. He was kind of forced into it um, all over some Nikes that we talked about before. Yeah. Oh, wow. But as a result of uh, Jeb Stewart not getting back in time, um, he also decided to raid some supply wagons, Union supply wagons, as one does. He did not get there until the late afternoon of the second day of combat. So the Confederacy was without their cavalry for entire, essentially entire two days, which put Lee at a disadvantage. Well, and plus, if he's the scout guy, they yeah. have no information from him. So, I mean. Yep. So that actually forced the Confederate forces to be very spread out at the first beginning of the battle. But, I mean, when you look at it hindsight, uh, blaming Jeff is pretty unfair considering a he still didn't give the order to for the charge and he still arrived a full day ahead of when the charge took place so he was still like participating in the battle um so that's why a lot of historians actually pivot to lieutenant general richard ewell well before i go into that do you guys have anything to say about uh good old jeb stewart 
I guess I shouldn't say good old Jeb Stewart <laughs> Confederacy, but well, I guess that depends who you're asking. But for yeah. <laughs> us, yeah, I mean, uh, it just seems like he kind of got a raw end of the deal because, like, how is he, he supposed? Get a lot of blame. He can't control the terrain, and like, if mm-hmm. you're telling him to go one way, he's gonna go that way. And if it happens that he can't make make the date that you set for it, it's not on him at that point. Like, he's mm-hmm. doing the best he can. Obviously, I don't think he's lollygagging around. So. For sure. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to add on that specifically. So back to our second scapegoat that Southern historians like to bring up is Lieutenant General Richard Ewell, who was the one that commanded the Confederate forces on the first day of combat. So this was two full days before the charge even took place. Ewell led the Confederate troops to claim victory on that first day, if you remember. But as we mentioned before, because he did not approach or advance the attack, against Union troops on that day one. Some Southern historians actually blame him for Pickett's charge and just the fact that the battle still went on for two entire more days. Because, if they again, if they would have taken that hill, those two hills, um, they could have maybe ended maybe even the Union entirely on that day if they drove the forces out, the Union forces out completely and won that battle. Yeah, and I... I could see more of an argument on this one other than good old Jeb, as you call him. But uh, still, it's like they had been fighting all day. They're in enemy territory. They suffered a lot of casualties. Yeah, they already had a a good number of people hurt, dead. I mean, to keep pushing, that's a lot of strain on your your forces. I mean... Mm -hmm. I it I do see the merit in saying we should they should have done it, but there's also a lot pointing to not doing it that's beneficial. So I mean, like I said, there's a lot of what ifs and like it it's not for us to say what would have happened had mm-hmm. he done it. So it's it's pretty much like you said, just scapegoating someone that you you can blame instead of Robert E. Lee, who is more of an idol to people who believed in the confederacy than a lot of these smaller names so that is a large part why lee is pretty much i mean when you think about the downfall of the confederacy lee's name is never brought up because he really is that idol in the south uh due to a large part he did have a lot of success in you know defending the south from a union or from the army of the potomac which it was called am i right on that army of potomac Let's just go, he was very successful in, you know, defending the South from the Union Army uh, several times, outmaneuvering everyone. Um, so, I mean, that's probably a big reason why, and if you think about it, the Union Army was had a lot more numbers when compared to the Confederacy in general, so. Poor leadership, though. He did blow this one, yeah. No, 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 I mean, the Union, historically, had poor leadership leading their military i mean the mm-hmm. turnover rate for the general of the union army was pretty that is I think, true i think the turnover, i don't know i don't want to exaggerate but it was like three or four times i thought that they t- did turn over in mm-hmm. the union army so yeah, well, I, think that, you are right. I think that's why this was such like a hard-fought battle on both sides is because one side had better leadership but less men and the other side had more men so i mean you the poorer leadership you can just throw your men at it because you have more i mean in that aspect it's it's gonna even out the playing field a little bit so i think that's kind of why this took so long to resolve just because there's so much 
on both sides that there's pros and cons I should say on either side and I guess they just balanced out enough that it became a, such a bloody affair so mm-hmm. so finally uh, we get to the last name that I mentioned before uh, who is General James Longstreet who was Lee's second command and again if you remember he was the one that most heavily criticized the move to make the charge and because he objected to Lee's order a lot of southern historians blame Longstreet and go as far as to call him a traitor for just questioning Lee's orders. And basically Seems a little say, cultish. What was that? Seems a little cultish. Yep, that's very cultish. Uh, so they call him a traitor and say that he stalled and sulked on purpose in getting the troops ready for the charge because apparently the charge was supposed to happen in the morning. Like I mentioned before, it didn't happen until... 3 p.m. in the afternoon after the two hours of shelling. And another big reason why he gets called a traitor by the South is that after the war, Longstreet actually joined the Republican Party, which was the party of one old Abraham Lincoln. And Longstreet even later accepted a federal job under President Grant. Now, to Southerners at the time, this was the ultimate betrayal. Their second command, essentially after the war, became part of the quote-unquote enemy in their eyes. So that was a huge reason why they get So they hold, they they hold it blame. against them. They started making better decisions. Also true. Well, it, and it's also the fact that uh, for a while, and even to this day, obviously it's not as prevalent today, but for people in the South, like the Civil War didn't end when like it historically ended, for a lot of people, emotionally at least. Yep. So, I mean... There's a lot of like feelings years afterwards that kind of play into, oh, well, we lost because this guy did bad or like we should have won the war, but we didn't kind of things. So, I mean, it's it's a lot of people that are sore and sour because they they think they had everything they needed to win, but for some reason they didn't, you know. Actually, in fact, I mean, you mentioned, you know, those feelings being present for years after. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, so the start of World War II for the United States, one of the last living Confederate soldiers said, and I quote, if Longstreet hadn't bungled at Gettysburg, we would not be in this mess. Oh, man. He said in response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which happened, uh, I'm sorry if I'm not exactly right, probably close to 80 years after the Battle of Gettysburg. I think it would be like 60-ish. 60, 70, okay. But yeah, I mean, what you mentioned, you know, those hostilities were still very prevalent right. well, decades they, after. I've still seen videos of people today that say, like, have they when when asked, did the Civil War ever end, they say no. So, I mean... That is true. It's still, it's still a prevalent feeling in some people. Obviously, like I said, it's not as prevalent as it used to be, but those feelings linger for a long time. I mean, it was a very important, like, historical event. Mm-hmm. in american history it was our only civil war and it was the bloodiest war in american history so i mean there's going to be a lot of tensions that carry over from that without a doubt so to kind of wrap this all up object obviously none of the blame goes on those three guys uh, when you consider on who made the decision to make that charge which was the quintessential point of the civil war turning the tide for union forces uh Objective, a hist- objective historians believe that the blame, of course, should fall on Lee, as he was motivated to strike a decisive victory on northern soil against the Union. 
and you need to keep in mind, I mean, we mentioned this before, this is only the second battle on northern soil. The only other one was Antietam, which was also extremely bloody. I believe had the bloodiest day um, of the yeah. Civil War, if I'm not mistaken. So the Confederates were hoping that a win at Gettysburg would force Lincoln and the Union Army to agree to a peace and essentially leave the South as an independent nation after losing a decisive battle on Union soil. Basically showing that they could do it, because in you know, all the other battles, besides Antietam, which was a draw, they had been winning on Southern soil. So the Confederates, the reason why Lee made the call for Pickett's Charge was A, because he wanted to strike that decisive blow. He thought that he could end the war there at Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge. And the Confederates were also, I mean, like you mentioned, Jacob, before, they were in Pennsylvania away from their resources, away from their supplies. So they were actually very low on food. And Lee believed that action needed to be taken immediately or he risked the failure of the invasion. Even if they did win at Gettysburg, if it, say, the battle went another day or two, they were, or he was worried that the invasion was going to fail, even if they had won, because they were so far off from their resources, they would have lost a lot more men if this battle went any further or any longer. So that was a big reason why he made the call to do that. And Pickett's men, who, I mean, Pickett gets the name, it's Pickett's Charge, his men were well-rested. They hadn't fought in the two days before. Lee had 150 cannons at his disposal, which proved not to be effective. And the cavalry had just arrived late to the battle, but was now available. So he was confident in making this decision that it could be done. I mean, it's almost like his overconfidence and desire to strike the Union at that specific moment was actually led to the decision to make the charge. And honestly, might be Lee's, up to this point, Lee's only big mistake as a general of the Confederacy. Because in the past, he, I don't want to say adapted, but he let the Union come to him and basically kind of do the reverse. They had the high ground, better positioning, and were able to mow down the Union forces. But in this case, he, I mean, he made a huge mistake that led to the end, potentially, or would eventually lead to the end of the Confederacy. And I, of course, I don't want to say, like, the Union didn't win the battle, the South lost it. I mean, the Union, the generals, General George Meade, was commended highly for, you know, taking on the burden of duty four days before the battle happened. Grand Lincoln did criticize him, but, I mean, General George Meade outgeneraled, if you allow me to say that, uh, Robert E. Lee. Well, and Lincoln's also not a general in a war, so also I mean... Also true. He's known for the top hat. Yeah. But I, uh, this just came to me, but this kind of a parallel that you see, speaking of World War II a couple of times that we brought it up, but... It, it kind of reminds me of how the German army tried to take Stalingrad or Leningrad, yeah. whichever one it was. I can't Stal- remember. I must say I Stalingrad. I think it's Stalingrad, but how they tried to take it in the middle of winter. And yep. it was obviously a terrible idea. Like they mm-hmm. were so far away from their supply lines. And I granted they had a, a lot of men, but Russia has way more people at their mm-hmm. disposal to use. And they were not afraid to throw as many people that they needed to at that battle. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it kind of reminds me of that mentality where you're at the end of your your you need to win this battle basically to continue what you're trying to do and you're so desperate to get there that you're willing to put anything you can on the line and it just leads to a decision that obviously in the 
in the long run ends up being a bad one. But at mm-hmm. the time, it just seems like you have to do this. Otherwise, there's no other option. Very true. I mean, all those factors led to Lee making the decision to, you know, have Pickett's men, along with James Johnson Pettigrew's men, charge the Union front. Um, and, I mean, when you look at the, just in general, the bloodshed at Gettysburg, uh, we're talking 165,000. These are all estimates, of course. 165,620 total forces engaged, with the Union having 93,921 of them. The Confederacy had 71,699 of the total forces. And the total estimated casualties were 51,112 people. Almost a third of the people that took part uh, in the Battle of Gettysburg were either captured, killed, or wounded. I mean, if I mean, if you think getting wounded in the Civil War, that essentially led Basically to either your arm sentence. getting cut off or death. That's startling. I think, for as, as bad as this sounds, the, a lot of the people who died uh, quickly, obviously, on the battlefield uh, were the lucky ones. The, the way they dealt with things mm-hmm. back there, you know, you look back on health care at the time and, you know, using buzz saws to take off people's limbs and not, you know, sanitizing anything and... Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you're literally just cutting someone's arm off with a, like a hacksaw and then pouring some whiskey on it and telling them to get out of there. Like yep. the amount of like diseases and infections that's set in like right. after oh, the fact terrible. Like, that killing you, it just sounds so, so much, much worse, worse than just having a musket ball go right through your head. Like mm-hmm. that are untreatable wounds. I mean, a shot to the gut was a death sentence. I mean, they're not, they're not coming that's in right. there and doing any major surgeries. It's so. just all the stories that you hear of people on the battlefield that were there like at the nighttime after the actual fighting oh, it's had screaming, ended. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. oh, I can't even imagine. Neither can I. It's it really is crazy. I mean we just look I believe one of you mentioned the Civil War was the bloodiest war in American history and it was you know, is nation against or not nation against nation, it was our own nation fighting against each other. Um but yeah. I don't I don't know if you guys have heard this story but i don't remember where exactly it was or which city it might have been antinum i don't remember but there was one battle where forces had to pretty much go down an alleyway and they just got mowed down in the alleyway and the blood like literally ran like a river down that alleyway because there were so many people that died and it just it literally like pooled and flowed oh, down and i that's just whew. yeah that's can't even imagine but anyway uh so that is the story of pickett's charge uh which what i mentioned before was regarded by many historians the quintessential moment uh the turning point for the union uh and led to the downfall of the confederacy so well uh that was pretty great i'm a big civil war fan so i can mm-hmm. really uh appreciate that topic obviously a lot of uh it's kind of an old cliche but my dad's a big uh, Civil War fan. You know, he's the kind of guy who's oh, got the man. documentaries on, you know, all the time. But uh, pop quiz for you guys. Maybe it's easy. I don't know. What was the turning point battle of World War Two? Because every war seems to have one. Does anyone know what it was for World World War Two? Battle of the Bulge. Well, I'm gonna say no. That was that was a guess. Sorry. Wasn't Iwo Jima? Was it? No. And I am talking about uh, at least in the war with Japan. I'm going to kick myself when you say it. It was the Battle of Midway. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. 
but anyway, I just think that's fun because every every war, you know, everyone are like, when did when did things really change? Right. So mm-hmm. well, anyway, and I'm just curious. I mean, for them with. you could argue that just us getting involved in the war was kind of the turning point too. Like, we we had our losses too in that well, war. Well, yes, know? obviously. But uh, yeah, yeah, and I think I don't know. You, you can you can make a different argument as far as. Uh, the war with Germany and our involvement with that, but I was mostly talking about uh, with Japan at that point. Well, and mm-hmm. like I mentioned, with Germany pushing so hard to get like uh, center point in Russia, it, like just us being involved pressured them that much more that they had to move and make those like more rash decisions. So I mean, yeah, it's, they were fighting on two fronts. Exactly. Like once you once you fight th- that spread out and you're spreading your forces that thin that far from home like maybe if they were uh, like near germany more so it wouldn't have been that bad but like it's it's a lot of strain to put on an army even if you have Mm -hmm. that many people that you can throw at it because i don't think many people were arguing with the the ss officers if they came and said hey you got to go fight but it, Mm -hmm. it is it is interesting to think how there are parallels in all these different battles that you can look at so what's the old saying uh that i know from fallout 4 which is one of my favorite video games it goes like war war never changes i mean there's oh. just so many parallels and you know all these different battles and i thought you were gonna say war what is it good for <laughs> that would be from one <laughs> bruce springsteen thank Seinfeld you special. yeah <laughs> but yeah uh, that was awesome evan thank you for that yep no problem probably see me a couple more times on the pod yeah so <laughs> next week we're we're looking at mark for for our next topic so yeah very exciting i don't know if you got something brewing in your noggin already or yeah yeah i, I think i'm closing in on my idea the the um thing i have to decide is, is whether or not it's a podcast long subject or whether i'll bring bring more than one to the same discussion um but it's kind of one of those things where you know a podcast at its fundamental basis is really just talking about things you want to talk right. about that are maybe themed uh towards one of your podcasts in this case history mm-hmm. uh, and you got to make you got to make an understanding that just because something might be a smaller subject now maybe you want to bring more to the table to help along with it but if i don't bring it up here we might never talk about it so, right exactly so i'm kind of taking that approach with my subject and uh i'll bring uh, more if i need to to fill up the, the time but yeah i'm excited about it I'm sure we can riff a little bit and oh, and fill that the, time, the first so. five minutes. If we minutes can't, of this no one, one could. I think we'll uh, I think we'll be just fine. But yeah, no, I, it'll I'm be looking fun. F- looking forward to. It. I yeah. I like the the dynamic we're setting up here, where we we all have our different little like not not that we're sticking in a certain boundary or anything, but no, that we're we're kind of already showing what each of us like to kind of go into and. Mm-hmm different aspects of history that we like to research where i'm more i'm more on the the i guess you could call it the kookier side of things <laughs> so evan's evan's kind of doing the more of like the that well we did ancient history for the first one and mm-hmm. then but still like not modern history so mm-hmm. I, I i love it I yeah think it's awesome mm-hmm. oh yeah i'm looking forward to seeing what everyone brings to the table and who knows maybe one day i'll be the kooky one Whoa, whoa! That's my goal. That that, <laughs> that in and of itself would be kooky. The whoa, crickets! That, <laughs> that joke was Woo. poopy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. All right. Was well, that a pun, Evan? Was that a pun? A bad one. Oh, well, those those can be good. But yeah, I think I think even like you were saying down the line, if you don't like, 
I don't know if you said for this topic you didn't think you had enough to really do a full episode on, but I mean, even if down the line you have a topic that you think is too big, like, I mean, there's plenty of opportunity to like take a topic, split it up and, and take it bite like a bite size episode. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's so much opportunity with a format like this to just get the information out there in any way possible. And I think that's kind of what I appreciate about podcasts is just how much versatility there is and like how you can present things and the different takes that the different hosts have. And it's, it's a lot of like on the spot stuff. You can't really like, obviously you do research before, but I mean, for uh, like today, for example, Mark and I, we, we only had what we knew. So, I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's always nice to like fill gaps if you can. And also just have those honest, like reactions to things so you bet completely agree all right guys well is there anything else you guys would like to say before we sign off here would this be a time to plug the uh potential video game podcast i mean yeah if you want to go for it yeah so i mean guys if you're kind of liking what we're doing with uh you know history in general kind of taking different pieces of history and talking about it explaining why it's interesting maybe talk about stuff that you may not have realized before uh, we have talked a little bit about doing a video game podcast uh, named tbd yeah we haven't decided yet and with that podcast we self decide what we really want to do of it or do with it um i'm guessing i'll need two episodes to complain about cyberpunk 2077 <laughs> that's understandable i still gotta play enough of that to make uh valid comments the 180 you did on that game is just outstanding yeah i mean i mean <laughs> I, here i am true. talking to evan one day telling me it's one of the best rpgs he's ever played not a week later he's telling me uh it's borderline one yep. of the worst rpgs he's ever played mm-hmm. and uh i still haven't played it so i go from excited I, to jump into <laughs> i don't know if i should but yep. uh, if you know if we're gonna do the podcast then obviously i'm gonna clock some hours into that and uh have more to say on it as if you know anything about the topic i am playing on a console so, I mean, if you know anything about Cyberpunk 2077... Oh, what specific console, just to specify, because it matters per version, maybe? Xbox One S. Not yeah. per version, but, like, per version. Yeah, so, I mean... Whoops. Somebody's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna... Woo! Woo! <laughs> I love little woo at the end, yeah. <laughs> just gonna uh. take my mic and go home. Whoa! Uh, and also, before we head out, uh, we did set up an email for this podcast. So, if you have anything you would like to say to us, any comments that you had, any questions that you had, anything you'd like to suggest for us to cover... Uh, that email address is gems of history podcast at gmail.com. So if you have anything you want to say, anything at all, we'll probably see it, whether it's good or bad. We might ignore the bad ones, but <laughs> I'm just going to say, you, you just gave that email out to Keezen? Oh, no. <laughs> no but... well, I would maybe say look out for our social media presence as well. Uh, handles probably, again, TBD. Um, but yeah. Yeah, so if you guys ever have anything you want to say, any suggestions, we're more than happy to hear, and we're always looking for more things to dig into and talk about. So until we hear from you, we'll talk to you next time, and thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Love you all.